The FTC is forcing Amazon to pump the brakes on its bid to buy primary care clinics. Also, an analyst says that when healthcare gets involved in politics, voters enter a fact-free zone. We'll explain why for both of those. Plus, a city in Ohio is looking to get rid of its residents' medical debt. And I'll tell you which one. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with us, as he has been, to discuss today's issues is economist and the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you. Today, we're doing another headlines episode. We're going to talk about some of the top issues happening right now in the healthcare world. And of course, one of those is the fact that the midterms are now less than two months away. And we will be discussing that a little bit later in the program. But first, I want to talk about a story we brought you a few weeks ago. And that is when we talked about uh, big businesses working on how they're going to get into healthcare. Uh, we mentioned Amazon.com, and Amazon had announced that they were going to buy One Medical, which is a chain of primary care clinics across the United States, and then they would employ uh, some physicians as well. That may be uh, slowing down, as it was announced in the Wall Street Journal this week, that the FTC, uh, Federal Trade Commission, is investigating the $3.9 billion deal to acquire One Medical's parent company. Um Ron, first, why don't we step back and, and, and reiterate again why Amazon would be interested in getting into the healthcare delivery system? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, I'm not going to pretend to know the mind of, of Jeff Bezos. Um, it's either an incredibly thrilling or scary place. But um, so I don't know exactly why they want to get into the healthcare delivery system other than Amazon is starting to look at using its capital and resources to get into a lot of different businesses and a lot of different industries. Healthcare being the largest single segment of the economy, um, it, it makes sense that that's a happy hunting ground for a lot of people who are looking at it uh, from a from a growth perspective. You know, it, it's a little strange to me that you know, Jeff wants to get into the delivery of care, except that he tends to like to, you know, take things that are broken or that have opportunities and revolutionize it. I mean, it's what he did mm -hmm. with, you know, with Amazon in general is revolutionize the way people shop for standard goods and services. So mm -hmm. um, that's my guess is that he wants to say, well, this is a broken market and it's a huge market. I can fix it and make money while I'm doing it. Is this sort of, uh, as we talked about before, is this, other than the fact that he, he is an innovator with the mm -hmm. creation of Amazon, is, is Amazon's buy of uh, primary care clinics and employing physicians similar to how private equity is getting involved in healthcare? Um, I think it's a little bit different. Um, you know, private equity tends to, and this is an overgeneralization, it's not always the case, but tends to get in it purely from the thought of getting a return. You know, it's more of an investment strategy um, than what I think Bezos is doing here. Bezos doesn't need returns. He's got returns. You know, I think he really enjoys 
you know, making things better and more efficient. And, and Lord knows there's a lot of inefficiencies in the healthcare delivery system. So, you know, I think it's a little bit different from that perspective. I think he really wants to try to do something here and not just looking at a way to get another 20% rate of return because he can get that in his core business. Mm -hmm. It wasn't reported that I could see uh, what exactly the FTC is looking for. What does the Federal Trade Commission usually look for when they start doing these antitrust investigations? Well, yeah, so the, the FTC at its purest level is to there to protect consumers. And their, their thought is they protect consumers by making sure that markets continue to be competitive and that they don't get so consolidated that consumers are harmed. We know that in a purely monopolistic marketplace, if you've only got one seller of a good or service, that seller can increase the price because where are you going to go for that good or service? And so mm -hmm. that's what it's trying to do is protect consumers. Now, typically, the FTC looks at market consolidation. You know, for example, if, you know, we talk about the big three auto manufacturers, mm -hmm. if they ever tried to get together and all form one company, that would clearly be blocked by the FTC because they would say that's market consolidation. Right, we like right. to have the co competition in between Ford and GM and et cetera. Um, here, that's a little bit questioned because, you know, okay, so let's say they're going to buy 180 clinics and employ some physicians. Well, there's over a million practicing physicians in the country. How is that going to be market consolidation? How right. is he getting big enough to do anything? I think this falls into a different category that the FTC and sometimes states look at. People get nervous about what they call the corporate practice of medicine. Um, some states have laws against the corporate practice of medicine and who can own doctors, etc. cetera. Um, so I think that's what's happening here. I think the FTC is reviewing it because it's healthcare. Mm -hmm. and not because of the size of the deal or any real market consolidation. How does this differ then in practice with the corporate practice of medicine? How does this differ then from a private equity investment? And why wouldn't the FTC look at something like that as well? Well, so without getting into um, some of the technicalities, which we could spend hours on, and it would be mm -hmm. mind-numbing, and I don't even understand <laughs> it that well. Um, when the private equity folks come into it, a lot of times they'll create sort of an MSO company that sells services through an exclusive contract to the doctors, but the doctors technically aren't owned by it. Okay. Or there might be some other. So there's some legal structures to get around it that, that feels a little bit like a tax dodge or, you know, a way to get around a law. And it is. It's legal. It's just a, a, a solution to a problem. Mm -hmm. um, typically, those private equity plays are a little bit smaller than this. And they, quote unquote, still have that doctors owning doctors kind of scenario. Right. If this wasn't Amazon, I'm not sure that they would take a look at it. But because of who it is, because of how big Amazon is, um, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, creating a little bit extra of a sniff test to it. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, with you, I will be hugely surprised if the FTC tries to block it because I don't know how they can. Um, it doesn't mm -hmm. fit into um, some of the indexes or numeric calculations that they use to determine market consolidation. And I so I think they're taking a look at it. I think they're going to slow it down a little bit. I don't think they'll be able to block it. Right. It would be different than if you had, you know, a couple of major, you know, privately owned hospitals in, in one market merging together, mm -hmm. I, I suppose, which is not really what's yeah. happening here when you're talking about primary care clinics. Well, and, and that's not 180 primary care clinics in one state. It's spread over right. 24 markets. Mm -hmm. So that's, again, it's a it's a inch deep and a mile wide. So 
Um, Amazon announced these plans initially back in July. Uh, they had an all-cash deal valued at about $3.9 billion. Um, they've also argued that the FTC has made excessive demands of Jeff Bezos over the years and other company executives, which, I'm, of course, they're no stranger to FTC probes. Um, and apparently FTC, interestingly enough, is also investigating their prime membership program. And if the deal goes through, Amazon would have more than 180 clinics with employed physicians, as we said, across two dozen U.S. markets. I want to switch gears a little bit now to talk about uh, a state issue, but it's a state that we are familiar with because it's where Fulcrum Strategies is based, and that's North Carolina. And right now, the North Carolina State Legislature is looking at uh, changes to Medicaid. Um, first, for those of us that haven't had the complete Healthcare 101 course, what is Medicaid and what are some of its advantages and disadvantages? Yeah, so Medicaid is um, a federally, highly federally subsidized, the states pay some of it, but the feds pay most of it, program to provide, in essence, free health care to um, folks who are below a certain income level. You can also qualify for Medicaid for certain conditions or disabilities, but the bulk of it is to really to provide free health care for people who are the working poor, if you will, or mm -hmm. below a certain income level. So um, every state has a Medicaid program. They all have slight differences to them as far as how you qualify at what level, um, whether it's a managed Medicaid where you get your coverage through insurance like you would an employer, just the government pays for it, or whether it's a, a what do they call the traditional Medicaid where the state pays all the claims and administers the benefits. Um, you know, advantages and disadvantages of Medicaid really depend on sort of where you're looking at it and from what perspective. Um, from the individuals who are, you know, low income and don't have insurance offered through an employer group, it's great. You get free health care. Otherwise, right. you probably wouldn't be covered. Um, you know, it's a it's a government program, so some people don't like it because it's expensive and it increases federal deficits, et cetera. Um, from a provider of care, Medicaid has sort of a mixed bag. Um, mm -hmm. It's better than no pay, and in a lot of cases, these patients wouldn't be able to pay their bill otherwise if they didn't have Medicaid. But Medicaid tends to be very low reimbursement, and most states well below Medicare. Mm -hmm. So it's your worst paying patient, if you will. Um, and so it always begs that question of, well, can I afford to care for these individuals or do I need to say no from a provider of care? So, you know, it's got its pros and cons um, and it, a lot of it depends on where your perspective is and what you're, you know, from what view you're looking at it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as we talked before uh, a number of times in this program and in, in our experience with working with physicians, physicians are in the business of wanting to help people for, I mean, I would say at least 99% of them are, are interested in helping people and that's why they became physicians. And that's, and I do think that the physicians, even if they are the lowest paying carrier, they do value being able to take care of those people who otherwise would not get care. Yeah, I mean, uh, I will tell you this, if, if medicine were purely run as a business, in the sort of cold calculating way that people look at, you know, corporations, etc. Um, Medicaid would be in serious trouble, there would be very limited number of uh, physicians that would see Medicaid patients. Um, I know a client that I have, um, we did some work for the for the client a few years ago, and we took a look at 
you know, what their average cost to produce an office visit, you know, how, mm -hmm. you know, after they pay for the building and the, and the lights and all the staff and the nurse and everything, everything, you know, before the doctor even walked into the exam room and for the average Medicaid office visit, that doctor walking into the exam room, in essence, was opening up their checkbook and writing the state a check. But I mean by that is the amount of money they'd receive for that office visit doesn't even cover all of their costs, including nursing and the rest of the stuff. Mm -hmm. So the doctor isn't working for free. They're seeing that patient at a deficit. Now, those doctors still take Medicaid patients. And when we presented them with this information, they said, yeah, but where else are they going to go? Mm -hmm. These patients need me. And so it, for them, it really was a charitable contribution. And that's great. And I have an enormous amount of respect for physicians like that. But in most situations, Medicaid does not cover their cost. Um, and so that's one of the problems that it creates. So Medicaid truly is one of those uh, safety net in insurances, mm -hmm. a little, which is obviously different from, from the exchange plans offered from the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and it's right. obviously different from what Bernie Sanders would want to do with Medicare for all. And I, it's, you know, personally, and this will be my opinion here. I think that's a reasonable use of state tax money um, because it is a safety net and it does, mm -hmm. it does provide people with needed care mm -hmm. um, in situations where they wouldn't otherwise be able to get it. What, and, and it's not the only, it's not the only thing where mm -hmm. that happens. Right. You know, you could draw parallels to a lot of other safety net programs. I mean, um, for free and reduced lunch in school systems, mm -hmm. you know, for, 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 um, you know, low income families is a safety net system. There's a number of those programs. So yeah, I mean, you can, you can make the argument that it's a social good and, and we're doing good for society by, by paying for that stuff. What changes, uh, is the North Carolina state legislature looking to make uh, to the North Carolina Medicaid program. So, uh, it, you know, as some people probably remember, part of what happened with the Affordable Care Act, which now is many, many years ago when it got mm -hmm. passed, it doesn't seem yeah. like it, but it is. <laughs> um, part of that bill, the Affordable Care Act, was what they called Medicaid expansion. And originally, the federal law would sort of force Medicaid expansion. And by that, I mean, it increased the income level to a much higher income level, which means more and more people would qualify for Medicaid. And part of that, the federal government said for the for a fairly lengthy period of time, we'll pay for it with no expense to the state. And then eventually it'll go back to the, the way it's split right now, which is um, roughly 80-20, you know, 80% paid by the feds, 20% paid by the states. Well, that was one of the things that got challenged in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court did rule that the federal government couldn't force that that because there was state money eventually involved, they couldn't force the states to expand Medicaid. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what happened was we had this split in this country where pretty much almost down party lines, with the exception of a couple of states, if your state was a state that was controlled by the Democrats, meaning a Democratic governor and usually a Democratic legislature, you expanded Medicaid. You went and took the free money and you gave Medicaid for more of your state's residents. And if your state was controlled either by a Republican Congress and or a Republican governor, you didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and we had that sort of dichotomy split. So North Carolina, being a state that has had um, typically Republican-controlled legislature, um, and in some periods between the, when the Affordable Care Act was done and now a Republican governor, um, didn't expand Medicaid. Well, mm -hmm. right now, North Carolina is considering, do we want to expand Medicaid? 
It's become a political issue. There's a, at least a little bit of bipartisan support. We don't know if there's enough yet. And so there's a question about whether or not the state of North Carolina will expand Medicaid, which just means will increase the income threshold, which means more and more people will qualify for Medicaid and our Medicaid rolls will go up if that passes. This may be too specific of a question that, that you may not know right off the top of your head. And if you don't, it's fine. But do you know what the, the income level is now, the, the max income level that you can have to qualify for Medicaid and what the proposed change is? Um, it's, it's very state specific on the income level. Um, and I don't know off the top of my head what the North Carolina was, but I know in general what happened when Medicaid expansion became a thing is they wanted to move it to about 400% of the poverty level. And so it's always measured in terms of the poverty level. Mm -hmm. um, it's a fairly decent jump when any state expands Medicaid. Um, now, it, it doesn't mean that everybody who makes less than 400% of the poverty level suddenly gets Medicaid because you can be making, you know, 300% of the poverty level and working in a job that offers you group insurance and that would disqualify you from Medicaid. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's one of those where you've got to clear a number of hurdles. They're just moving up the, the income level hurdle. Do you know roughly how many more people in North Carolina would qualify uh, for Medicaid if this were to, to pass in the way that they're discussing now? Um, it will really depend on what that final income level will be. Right. Um, and so I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. You know, it's, it's not going to be 20 people. It's not going to be another 2 million people. It'll, you know, mm -hmm. it'll be probably, a, um, I've heard numbers in the, you know, 100,000 or so more. Uh, looking at an article here from uh, Spectrum News, and we'll have it linked in the show notes from June of this year. Um, we had uh, the Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore, and I just had it here, and it scrolled away from my face, which is making it difficult. He uh, didn't seem to be too keen on it. He said um, when he talked about the, how the House rejected the Senate bill in North Carolina, uh, he said the Senate was buying a car without test driving it, and the thing's too much of a political football from, from day one. How much of this is a political football as we head into the 2022 midterms? Um, from day one, including now, it's a huge political football. Um, remember, this all started with the Affordable Care Act, which was a purely, mm -hmm. you know, partisan bill that got pushed through under reconciliation. So, um, you know, all all part of the process, but the Republicans didn't like it when it got passed because it would, they used reconciliation, would avoid avoided the filibuster, um, and it was a very partisan bill. And so, from day one, it got attached. This is a quote unquote Democrat program, and if you're a Republican, you have to oppose it, um, just like. You know, go fast forward to, uh, let's say, the last, you know, um, tax cuts from Trump. That was a Republican program. And if you're a Democrat, you have to oppose it. So it, it continues to be a political football. The problem now is, and because it's a political football, um, you know, there are some Republicans who go, man, I don't want to be hung up with defending why I wasn't willing to give free health care to more North Carolinians. Um and so that creates an issue for them. Um, and I don't know how they're they're going to resolve it. Um, again, I, I right now, if I had to be a bet man, I'd say it's got a maybe less than a 50% chance of passing. But mm -hmm. it's the first time since the ACA that it has any chance of passing. Right. Um, if I recall correctly, the federal government um, 
had some gave some extra funding to states through their COVID nineteen funding for Medicaid. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. There was there was a number of different parts of the COVID nineteen funding that um, money was funneled to the states in a number of different areas, and one of them was Medicaid. So the the money that North Carolina may or may not have received from Medicaid is that something that's from COVID. Uh, is that something that's playing into the to the political debates now, or has that money been used and gone? No, that and that has to be separated um, okay. because of the Supreme Court ruling that said the federal government cannot sort of force the states into this kind of a situation. Okay. Uh, according to Spectrum News, North Carolina is one of a dozen states uh, that has not expanded Medicaid, um, and Congress last year approved new funding for incentives uh, to which they say get to get the last holdouts to extend the coverage, including um, uh, North Carolina in this. What other, um, I mean, this says that there's about 12 states that haven't done this. Um, we mentioned there before that it was along party lines. Is there any expectation that all of them will follow suit if North Carolina does this, or is it expected that they're not going to uh, expand Medicaid more than they have? Uh, no, they're, they're, there are clearly, I think, some states where Medicaid expansion is an extremely difficult uh, uphill fight um, because of you know how how much the Republicans are in control and 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 the state demographics. Um, I, I would expect that you know Texas is never going to expand Medicaid uh, mm -hmm. as a, as an example. Um, the reason why it's down to sort of a dozen, where originally when the ACA passed it was almost fifty fifty. Um, is understanding that governments are really good at putting in programs. They're horrible at taking them away once they're put in. Right. So all you have to have in a period of time is that magic moment where, you know, the Democrats control the, the governors so you can get rid of a veto or control the legislature and enough to override a veto. But once you get that magic moment where um, they control both, they can pass it and expand Medicaid. And then when the Republicans, you know, in a cyclical change, take back over, boy, they, they can't take it away because it's it's one thing to give health care. It's a whole different thing to take it away from a bunch of people. That's deadly. Um, so slowly over time, as states have reached that, you know, that moment where, wow, we've got, you know, Democrat control, they pass it. And then if the Republicans can take control later, they really can't take it away. Or they don't have the stomach to. So that's why it's down to about a dozen and why they're trying to get rid of, you know, they're trying to push right now since we've got, you know, a federal government that is, you know, that is in Democrat control, why they're pushing to get more and more of these states to, you know, to go along. Because they know once they flip one that it probably doesn't get flipped back. Right. And even at a federal level, with the multiple attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act itself, it's, you know, we've seen that even on a federal level, it's difficult to take away the programs that, yeah. that were put in place by previous governments. In addition to that, um, North Carolina is, I, I believe, is slowly getting more and more democratic, uh, more blue, rather. Mm -hmm. They've gone from having a veto-proof Republican uh, legislature for what seemed like a while uh, to not having a veto-proof legislature anymore and now having a Democratic governor mm -hmm. with the with the legislature. as I'm assuming that as North Carolina gets more blue with more people moving to the state, that Medicaid expansion really seems to be a matter of time as opposed to not an if. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know... Um if the trend continues to go in North Carolina the way it's gone, I think you're right. It's a it's a win, not if, um, if that trend continues. Mm -hmm. 
Finally, I got one more Medicaid thing to bring to you, and I'm putting you a little bit on the spot about, sure. about this. But this is from this is regarding um, the insurance carrier Centene, and I mentioned this in the Friday Pulse check a few weeks ago. Um, they settled with the state of Washington. Um, they were going to pay 19 million dollars to the state of Washington and 13 million dollars to the federal government over allegations that they overcharged the state's Medicaid pharmacy benefits management program. That's a mouthful. Uh, they've also settled, this is the 11th state that they've settled with um, after settling with Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Mississippi, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Ohio, and three other named states. Um, and this is all over allegations that they were overbilling their Medicaid, the Medicaid programs for prescription drugs. How much does this um, hurt Centene's ability to have managed Medicaid programs and do you, do you know anything about why they were overbilling to begin with? Um, it, it definitely hurts, and I think that's why they settled. Um, you know, I've heard some stuff that Centene is still doing that. We're not admitting any fault, and mm -hmm. we still don't think we did anything wrong, but we, you know, we had to settle. Um, it hurts because these contracts are awarded by the states. Um, and, you know, when it starts to get out that you're overbilling a state or there's an allegation of overbilling, other states might look at it and go, maybe we're not going to renew that contract. Or maybe mm -hmm. the next state that goes to manage Medicaid says, ah, I'm just not sure I want to, you know, have Centene be one of my, uh, um, you know, one of my carriers that I contract with. So, you know, it definitely hurts. And, and I think that's why they settled. You know, um, do I think they're, personally, do I think they're completely clean? No, no, I don't think they are. I'm not sure that this isn't one of those kind of loophole scenarios right um i don't know enough about the details of the case and nobody else probably does unless you're one of the attorneys involved with it mm -hmm. where it may be one of those things where yeah it was allowed but probably on the little bit of the shady side of allowed and mm -hmm. you know and and remember you know centene is a for-profit company they're designed to maximize their shareholders investments and so it gets dicey sometimes in corporate America when you're saying, well, this probably wasn't the intent of what the the rules are, but it's not a, a complete violation of the rules, you know, so. Right. Um, and, and according to the, the state attorney general's office in a press release, they say that the Centene, and of course, allegedly, so obviously Centene mm -hmm. is not admitting fault. Centene allegedly failed to pass on discounts that it received um, from the Medicaid program and instead inflated dispensing fees. Um, and they also, and state state attorney general also says it's the second largest Medicaid fraud recovery settlement in their state history. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm assuming failing to pass on the discount is more of a, is, is sort of like what you're saying, where it may have been legal, but it's under generally understood that that's what they were supposed to do to begin with. Well, and here's a you know here here's a perfect example. When you get into the PBM systems and the you know the pharmacy benefit managers and the whole oral medication game, there are discounts, and there are dispensing fees, and there are rebates. Mm -hmm. Is a rebate a discount? Well, it depends who you ask. Right. You know, and there's a reason there is a rebate, and there's a reason it's distinct and different from a discount. This, these questions, for example, have been asked by self-funded employer groups all the time. You know, well, if I'm paying the bill, I want all my discounts. And there are some payers and some PBMs that say you're getting all the discounts. Now, I'm keeping the rebate, but you're getting the discount. Well, you know, that's one of those 
you know, we're, we're splitting hairs here and it really, you know, tomato, tomato. So, you know, I think that's likely what's going on here is my, my guess is that they're saying, well, you got your discounts. I just kept the rebates and the rebates right. are mine. Mm -hmm. um, and I could see the state going, no, 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 no. You know, if I'm the one paying the bill, I want the rebate too. Mm -hmm. So... Well, it, Medicaid, clearly, any government program is clearly uh, complicated. And as we've discussed before, the pharmacy benefit manager system is overly and absurdly complicated. And I think we've both talked about that it probably shouldn't exist in our, in our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. we'll, uh, if you want to read more about these, we'll have, them link, we'll have articles linked to these uh, topics in the show notes, which you can find on this platform that you're listening on or at flatlining.net. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. We want to turn now to the uh, midterms, which are now less than two months away. Um, getting very excited to see political ads return to my television here in uh, Southeast <laughs> Michigan, and I'm sure that they've already returned down where you're at in North Carolina, Ron. Yeah, I, I hope, really hope you're being sarcastic and facetious <laughs> there, because if you are, you really need well, mental health. And, you know, <laughs> well, and they had discussed that when, because uh, Michigan for the first time has two um, female candidates running against each other for governor, and you have a very um, pro-abortion candidate in uh, running as an incumbent, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and you have a, a very pro-life candidate running um, with on the platform of no exceptions whatsoever. And that seems to be the topic of um, all of the political ads that I've seen on television, which makes uh, watching TV that much more depressing when you've got your local mm -hmm. news on, especially when you live in a place like Detroit, like I do. Mm -hmm. um, as they're less than two months away, Democrats seem to have, um, I would say, a pretty good marketing scheme regarding healthcare, uh, particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, they were able to market that they Medicare can, quote unquote, negotiate drug prices um, and that they are capping some premiums for seniors. Republicans seem to have nothing except for COVID-19 restrictions. And I'm curious, uh, we've kind of talked about this before. I'm curious uh, if your opinion has changed on on what might happen going into November. Yeah, um, I actually think that Healthcare, at a macro sense, is going to be a very small part of the midterm decisions. Okay, I really do. I, you know, um, because other things have come up. You know, if we were not post-pandemic, if we were not high inflation, high gas prices, if we were not, you know, supporting a conflict in Ukraine, if we, I mean, there's a whole laundry list of things that are getting people charged up, and and healthcare is sort of taken. A back seat. Now, I will tell you that some people will lump abortion rights or, or what mm -hmm. happened with the Supreme Court in, in healthcare, and it is healthcare. But I, I'm talking about sort of macro healthcare coverage right. and 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 economics and payment. I, you know, I think it's getting lost in the in the noise. Now, I agree with you that 
the Democrats, where possible, are trying to say, well, we've done something about health care cost with the Inflation Reduction Act. And we talked about that earlier. It really isn't going to change the deficit at all. Mm-hmm. And it's really very small what they've done there. But they're playing that up. And you're right, the, the Republicans don't really have a good um, health care answer. You know, I think the, the Republican strategy is going to be around other things. Um, as odd as it sounds from a purely political standpoint, I think the Republicans hope that inflation stays high and gas prices stay high because that's their right. best channel to win. Right. Um, because they're very real items. And, and obviously, the Democrats hope whether it's through anything that they did at all or not that inflation goes down and gas prices go down. Mm-hmm. Um, those things are going to be, I think, much more important than the the, you know, do we cover everybody with health care and what's happening with premium costs, et cetera? Right. And, and I'm glad you made that distinction about abortion because you do have a lot of people who do believe it is a health care issue. But when we talk about it on this program, I think when, when we refer to health care issues in, in politics, you're right. We're talking more about um, Medicare, Medicare for all. Uh, changes to how commercial insurance is done, how you know how providers are going to be affected by different things going through Congress, um, and for that reason, it's sort of excluded when we talk about whether or not healthcare will have a role in, in the midterms or in the election. Right. right. Um, with regards to so there was you know spent time with some family this weekend, um, and a lot of them really didn't like the uh, <laughs> the the student loan. Um, forgiveness thing, and they they equated it to to buying votes uh, in in some instances, and they didn't think that that's actually going to be followed through with. Um, I don't know about that, but how much of Biden's recent um, um, policy wins, either at the executive level or at the congressional level with the Inflation Reduction Act, how much is that going to help push the Democrats, you think, uh, in November? Well, I I think what what we've seen over the last, call it two, maybe three months mm-hmm. maximum, is a very concerted effort and, and, you know, admirably done as far as execution to deal with what was a very problematic position. I mean, if you peel back, you know, four or five months um, and you, you listen to pundits or headlines then, it was a no-brainer that the Republicans were going to take the House, they were going to take the Senate, and by pretty big margins. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the administration seemed to be floundering. They didn't have any wins. Inflation was up. Gas prices were up. Things were terrible. And, you know, you had Republican strategists and 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 politicians going, oh, it's a, this is going to be a field day. Fast forward to now, and I think this is a result of a, of a conscious effort to say we need to turn the tables. We need to get our approval rating up. We need to have some things to hang our hats on, some wins. Um, some of it you could claim they got lucky and that you know inflation started to come down and gas prices come down, but you started to see those wins. The Inflation Reduction mm-hmm. Act, you know, the the announcement on the the. Uh, um, the loan repayment for student loans. Um, you know, recently you saw them go on, uh, saw at least the president go on the attack with his recent speech. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of grand political strategy being played out. And if you listen to pundits today, people are going, oh, maybe the Republicans don't take the House. Maybe the Senate's, the, maybe the Democrats actually pick up a couple of seats in the Senate. Mm-hmm. 
things that weren't even considered a possibility three, four months ago are now considered in play. Um, so, you know, do I think that, um, you know, the loan repayment thing is buying votes? Well, isn't it all in some ways right. buying votes? I mean, it's, you know, is it trying to get victories, political right. victories, I mean, right? This is a, you know, this is a strategy by one party to try to, um, you know, do well in the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. Just like the Republicans are executing their strategies on trying to, for them to try to do well in the midterm elections. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think a lot of these actions that have taken place have been a clear uh, move to get some wins that they can hang some hats on so they could run on things because, you know, running on what got them in this position wasn't going to work again. Historically, it is difficult for the party that controls the White House to, if they already have it, uh, keep the House and the Senate during a midterm, um, or if they don't have it, to regain it. Uh, this, as we talked before uh, just now, as you mentioned, that there's it's a little bit up in the air at this point. Um, 538.com is giving Republicans about a 75% chance of taking a House and only a 32% chance of taking the Senate from the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, Biden's uh, approval ratings have been going up from their low, which was in July, the, the low being 37.5%. Uh, 538 has them up at about 43%, and I think Real Clear Politics has that at about 42%, depending on which polls you're, you're looking at. Um, and in an article for 538, uh, Monica Potts and Zoa Kamar um, list off a lot of the victories that the Biden campaign, Biden campaign, the Democrats have had um, really since June. You have the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, albeit whether or not that will do what they claim it will do. Um, Biden signed gun safety. Uh, the Al Qaeda leader after Osama bin Laden's death was killed in a drone strike. Um, the only thing that really seems to be a sticking point for Republicans is we're now a year from the failed withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think that might be um, a little bit of a problem with the exception of the fact that Biden signed legislation um, to get more um, um, medical benefits from the VA for those veterans that were exposed to toxic burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so you're, you're right in the sense that of the buying votes that now they've had a series of political victories within the last, you know, two months that they didn't have before. And that's been able to push at least the Senate into challenge territory um, going into this midterm. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you think about how much things have moved in the last three months and you think that, you know, there's still two months to go before the actual election, um, there's still a lot of movement that could happen either way. You know, I mean, so I would say that, you know, we're not even close to knowing exactly how this is going to happen. And I've also seen some other statistics that, you know, this looks like this could be the largest turnout in a midterm election ever. Mm -hmm. And whenever there's a large turnout, that sort of says, well, wow, you know, um, yeah, something's happening. What, what else is going to happen? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the things we've learned in the last several election cycles, really, especially the last two primary election cycles, is there's a lot of people who think that the polling that gets done has less and less um, validity to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the, I, I read something else that, that um, one of the problems is many people, I'm included in that, may have a landline that I never answer. 
right. you know. And so all of this telephonic polling that used to reach somebody is not reaching everybody anymore. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how that skews the numbers. So, you know, we're going into with some of these numbers where they're trying to predict the outcomes of elections, the actual prediction tool may have problems with it. Right. Um, so I think it's, you know, all bets are off and there's still a lot of football to be played yet. And this game mm -hmm. ain't over yet in any right. way. I want to talk a little bit about, um, I, I want you to put your, put your crystal ball in front of you for a few minutes and, and talk about what, what could happen healthcare wise, uh, mm -hmm. following the midterm. And specifically, I want to think about, um, the most likely scenario that seems right now is that what could happen healthcare wise if Republicans take the house, but Democrats keep the Senate. Then, uh, it's easy. Nothing. Okay. Nothing will happen healthcare-wise. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things, whether you agree or disagree with, you know, with what happened with the Affordable Care Act, um, the the Obama administration, largely with Rahm Emanuel, who was chief of staff at the time, correctly figured out that they had one chance to get something through, and that was before their midterms. Mm -hmm. They knew they were going to get shellacked in the midterms, and they got shellacked bad. Um, and they knew that the only way they get something through was while they had that magic of controlling the Senate, the House, and the presidency, which is why that thing got through almost on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. You know, they needed to get it through before they lost that because they would never have another opportunity, and they didn't. So if we run a scenario where the Republicans have the House, the Democrats have the Senate, and the White House, there is no way the Republicans let anything major with health care get through that could be viewed as a Democrat win when the next general election comes. So they have to play defense. They have to be obstructionistic. And if you control the House, you have enough to be construct obstructionistic, and that's what will mm -hmm. happen. There won't be anything big that will come through. Anything that gets tried will be purely for the political theater of being able to say, well, we tried to do this, and the Republicans blocked it. Mm-hmm. If they keep the House, um, either great, make their majority bigger or smaller, um, or, and keep the Senate, same sort of thing, if they keep it at a 50-50 or, or have a slight gain, um, healthcare-wise, what do you think could happen? So if the Democrats maintain control, either current level of control or expand their control a little bit, um, I don't think anything major will happen, anything like Medicare for all or okay. any sort of a, a huge overall. And here's the reason. In order to do that, you've got to do the nuclear option, which means you've got to avoid the filibuster. Mm -hmm. You've got to go through reconciliation, or you just have to pass rules in the Senate to get rid of the filibuster. Um, I don't think that's going to happen as long as Biden is the president. He has been opposed to that scenario, even when his party's screaming for it, um, because he is you know, old school. And he is from the age when... He had true friends across the aisle. I mean, mm -hmm. he and, and Lindsey Graham are actually pretty good friends. Um, he was good friends with John McCain um, before John McCain passed. So uh, he doesn't like the nuclear option. And I, and I think in some respects it's because he's sort of old school like that. And I think some of he understands that if you do it when you're in power, it's going to be done to you when they're in power. Okay. And the nuclear option is the only way they get something big through. Now, you could get maybe some small stuff through. And by small stuff, I mean things that Biden has liked to do. Um, potentially, maybe the public option is, a, is an addition to the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. um, he liked uh, Medicare buy-in, where people could 
people and individuals could buy into Medicare at age 60 or 55. And the government doesn't subsidize it. They're just allowed to purchase it. You know, things like that might happen. You might have another thing like the Inflation Reduction Act where Medicare, quote unquote, gets to negotiate and it's really not that much. So little things could happen. We're not going to have anything big like Medicare for all or anything okay. like that. In the off chance that Republicans take both the House and the Senate, uh, what do you think could happen? Um, not much, if anything, because in order for them to be able to do something with that, they would have to take enough to where they could override a presidential veto, and they're not going to get that much in the Senate. You know, at, at best, they're going to have a slim margin, 51-49, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 52-48, something like that. In their wildest dreams, maybe they get to 55, um, but they definitely don't get enough to do a, uh, to override a veto. And so anything that the Republicans have talked about doing to healthcare in the in the past, like um, back when Paul Ryan was in the House, they were talking about making, you know, um, some changes to Medicare, making Medicaid, making it block grants or things like that. Those will clearly get vetoed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if they don't have a veto override, um, they might push some stuff and pass some bills, but they'll just get killed. Mm-hmm. Staying with politics, I want to turn to a um, healthcare policy analyst, uh, Dr. Paul uh, Keckley. He's a PhD, uh, who had in his uh, newsletter just the past couple of days, and now again, like my article earlier, has disappeared from my screen. Uh, he has was talking about the countdown to the election in November and had some observations regarding healthcare. And he pointed out that campaigns are probably going to avoid healthcare issues. Um, other than abortion. Uh, he said, conceding that healthcare is expensive and access is uneven, he said, most of the midterm campaigns will default to these partisan themes. And for the Republicans, it will be the U.S. healthcare system is the best in the world because of capitalism and entrepreneurialism. Uh, and the Affordable Care Act failed to slow health cost increase and should be replaced. He said, on the Democratic side, they're going to hear the same messaging that you usually hear um, during a general election, that healthcare is a right, not a privilege. Prescription drug companies and hospitals price gouge. Health system is unfair. And public health is poor. Um, I generally take I, I, I take a little bit of issue because I don't think the GOP cares enough about the Affordable Care Act anymore to talk about it. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on those um, Democratic and Republican themes of healthcare in the midterm. Yeah, so I, I think um, he's generally right. I, I agree with you. I don't think they'll get deep enough to actually tie to the Affordable Care Act because it's now so ingrained that it's a tough, you know, it's a it's a tough hill. Um, I think what they'll do is more of a a more, you know, ten second soundbite, um, and that's the it ain't it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, you know that this is the best healthcare system in the world, and what they'll probably do rather than saying the Affordable Care Act didn't cause, you know stave off medical inflation, they'll say, and the Democrats want socialistic health care where everybody's going to have to wait long times for appointments and, you know, our quality will go down. I think that will be their um, their pitch. I think they'll drop the Affordable Care Act piece on it because it's just too, you know, too difficult to explain. They, they couldn't even pass it when they had a Republican-controlled Congress right. and a Republican White House. Right. So, um, but it's, you know, I think he's right in that there's going to be, hey, everything's great. Why mess with it? And those guys want you to be, you know, want us to be Canada or England where everybody has to wait 10 years to get a surgery. Right. uh, And doesn't get access to the best medicines. 
you know. Um, and, and, and he's right. The Democrats will say, you know, hey, this is a horrible system. So many people can't afford it. It's breaking the backs of the working people. And, you know, they'll, they'll do their piece. One of the more uh, interesting things that he had in his analysis here is that he said healthcare is increasingly a fact-free zone for politicians seeking votes. That's a pretty big statement to say that when people going out campaigning are just not caring about <laughs> the facts of the matter when we talk about healthcare. I mean, he he boils it down to three basic things. He, first is that voters don't understand the U.S. healthcare system. Um, it, it's not. Um, you know, it's, it is fairly complicated sometimes with the insurance plans. We talked about Medicare, talked about Medicaid, talked about pharmacy benefit managers. It's a complicated system. Uh, he also talked about how healthcare policies issues of significance are very complicated. Um, with, you know, we talked about the Affordable Care Act, you know, whether or not it's going to slow the cost of healthcare, whether or not um, block grants are going to make Medicare and Medicaid more affordable. Um, he, rather than something like abortion, where you have, are you for abortion or are you against abortion? It's very uh, diametrically opposed. And finally, he says that trusted sources are now less trusted. And he, he points to things like the Supreme Court. Uh, it talks about the Centers for Disease Control Prevention uh, and other healthcare agencies based off of the COVID pandemic. I'm curious what you what your thoughts are on on those three things. And do you think that healthcare is a fact freeze? Healthcare in politics has become a fact-free zone. Yeah, I, I loved his comment about, it, you know, that the way he condensed it down to a fact-free zone, because I think he's almost dead on right on all of it. Healthcare is an incredibly complicated um, system and issue. It's not something that lends itself well to a, a 10 second soundbite or something that you can, you know, that you can consume in the average Twitter post. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's absolutely right about that. You know, we now are have a we have real trust issues. I mean, we've got a segment of the population who doesn't trust the FBI now, and they don't trust the CDC, and they don't trust a. And it's almost like in some parts of the population, I wonder, um, who, is there anything you do trust? I mean, is it everybody out to get you? Sort of right. perspective. Um, but I also think this is a symptom that's bigger than just healthcare. You know, taken. We've talked about it before about sort of the abortion issue. Right after the Supreme Court ruling, uh, you know, which received an awful lot of attention. I mean, you had mm -hmm. to be pretty much asleep not to know that something major happened in the Supreme Court. I was talking to an individual who's, you know, a pretty intelligent individual. And the following statement came out of their mouth. I'm so glad that the Supreme Court made abortion illegal. And I said, no, no. Right. That's not at all what happened. Mm -hmm. Yes, it did. They ruled against Roe v. Wade, and now abortion is illegal. I said, no, no. And, and this wasn't even about the pros or cons of abortion. I wasn't even getting right. it. I was like, no, no. What they said was it's a state issue, that right. it's not a federal right, and therefore the states can decide. And the person looked at me like I had three heads and said, no, mm -hmm. they made it illegal. And so if something that really should be a fairly simple thing, you know, the what the Supreme Court said and what states can or can't do was completely blown out of the water because for some reason, somehow, this individual probably saw a tweet that said, hooray, abortion is now illegal, and that's all they wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. Well, how on earth is that person ever going to get engaged enough to deal with the complexities of all the things we've talked about and the three pillars of healthcare and how, you know, balancing between quality and cost effectiveness and access and all that 
it ain't going to happen. Right. Um, and when you add that with a trust problem, and I'm not going to believe somebody who tells me otherwise, it's an individual that I've known for a fairly long time, and they didn't even bother to go, well, geez, Ron, I, what, do you, what do you mean? Or it was just, why are you spouting this thing that's wrong to me? I remember I read the Twitter post, you know, and I was like, mm -hmm. holy cow. So, yeah, I think Keckley's absolutely right. But I also think that you could say fact-free zone in politics about a number of things, sure. uh, not just healthcare. It's sad because healthcare is such a huge part of, of what our economy runs on, and it's something everybody eventually at some point in their life uses and needs. Um, it's fad that, sad that that's turned into a fact-free zone, but I think he's dead on right. Right. And, and even point out another issue that outside of healthcare, you, you could hear um, from certain people that, well, Donald Trump cut taxes with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. And that might be true for some people, but it definitely wasn't true for anyone, for everyone, rather. Right. And and it, it boils down to those issues. And and Keckley makes that interesting point about the, the, the exact point you talked about with the, um, the opinions about abortion. It's not just pro-choice and pro-life. Dobbs' decision was much more, uh, much more impressive, for lack of a better word, than than that. It was about mm -hmm. the federal government's role in certain state policies. Um, oh yeah, I mean, you get, you want to get sort of deeper and nuanced into that. I mean, it, it it was much more important, I think, from a perspective of federal government's role and and what their limits of authority are under the Constitution, et cetera. It also you could get into, and there's no way the general public's going to get this deep into the whole thing about settled law. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we we had been to a large degree operating on with the Supreme Court acting as if, well, if it's already been ruled, we're not going to overrule. We're not going to change what is quote unquote settled law. Right. Well, now that's changed. And, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying now, okay, well, um, are there other things that have been settled law that might not need to be or shouldn't or can we not count on in mm -hmm. the future? Um, I'll give you a personal example. You know, um, you know, my child has autism. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a case uh, years ago with a school in Iowa that established that every individual in this country is due a free and public education, regardless of the cost. Okay. That, that if a school says, well, that student would be very difficult to, to service because they have all these other needs and it would cost us too much that Iowa case said, no, it doesn't matter. That is an inalienable right. Well, can I still count on that? Or that might that be changed? And again, I'm not arguing pro or con on the whole mm -hmm. decision versus abortion. I'm not getting it. I'm just saying, you know, there's a deeper issue in, in, in states versus federal rights, but also there's a subtle law issue. There's other issues around it. But we didn't even get close to scratching the surface of it when it first came out because in our current sort of, I have only so many characters on Twitter and the media only has my attention for 12 seconds. Right. It condenses mm -hmm. everything down, and, and that creates real problems for us. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I, regarding the abortion issue, there's a similar thing here in Michigan where we have direct democracy on some things. There's a mm -hmm. ballot initiative that uh, got more than enough signatures um, to get on the ballot in November, and they want to change the Michigan Constitution to uh, allow for an abortion almost in any reason, uh, depending on who you ask. However, the State Board of um, Canvassers right now voted to not even though they got the amount of um signatures needed voted to not keep it on the ballot because of the fact that the the final wording that was submitted to the state board of canvassers 
didn't have any spaces between any of the words. Mm-hmm. And that was what was going to show up on the ballot in November. But to your point, you have people saying, well, now you, these evil Republicans on the State Board of Canvassers are voting to keep abortion off the ballot. When really what they were saying was, well, no, that's not the issue here. The issue is there's no spaces and we can't have a jumbled sentence stuck into the Michigan right. Constitution. It doesn't make any right. sense. Right. Um, so, of course, that's being um, meted out in, in the courts here in Michigan as well. Do you, any final thoughts on uh, Keckler's piece or the uh, upcoming midterms uh, in our final few minutes? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the sad part is um, that we've got to figure out a way to govern effectively throughout all this morass. You know, we, we, it's, we, I think none of us want a scenario where people govern by um, smoke and mirrors, by telling us they've reduced the deficit or, or allowed Medicare to negotiate when that really isn't exactly what happened, or by buying votes. Um, none of us want, you know, these, these what are very, very serious issues to be condensed down to what we can, you know, consume in a Twitter post or a 12 second news clip. But we got to figure out a way around it because that's the path we're headed to. And so, you know, I remain in general and guarded optimist and that I hope that we'll at some point reach um, a point where, you know, our legislators and our politicians will stop insulting the intelligence of the average American and start shooting straight. I actually think if we got people who started to really tell it like it is, that they might be surprised how successful they would be. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I don't see that hope on the horizon right now. So I think Keekley's right. Um, healthcare is not going to be debated either in the midterm or in the next general election on a fact-based area. It'll all be fear-based. Um, I think the midterms right now will, you know, will go the way they are, not based on what's actually been done or what can be done, but based on who, you know, for lack of a better term, can market their position better. Um, I hope it turns around sooner than later. I don't see anything right now that tells me it'll be sooner, but I'll remain hopeful. Mm -hmm. Well, that's about all the time we have for this program today. So Ron, thanks for joining us on the Flatlining Podcast. No problem. Thank you. We'll make sure to have Paul Keckley's uh, campaign 2022 update regarding healthcare available in the show notes for this program at flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Earlier in the program, we mentioned the student loan forgiveness program that was recently brought about by the Biden administration. And for our final thought, we wanted to share that a city is looking to forgive medical debt. We mentioned this last week as this was one of the criticisms of the student loan forgiveness program. People claimed that medical debt would have been more worthwhile to forgive because unlike student loans, people don't opt in to medical debt. 13 Action News in Toledo, the local ABC affiliate, is reporting that that city could use $1.4 million of federal COVID-19 relief funds and partner with RIP Medical Debt 
to wipe out 180 to 200 million dollars of medical debt for about 25,000 residents. A city council vote on the matter could come as early as next week. Cook County in Illinois, where the city of Chicago is located, is also considering a partnership with RIP Medical Debt. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley, and have a good week.